0: Good morning, friends. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice rejoice and be glad in it. Um, I hope that as you stood on your two feet this morning and got up and did whatever you do before you come out to church on Sunday morning, that you had a moment to rejoice in the day that the Lord has made. If that has not been your experience thus far this morning, I hope that before you leave uh, our two doors this after or later this morning, you will rejoice in the day that the Lord has made. I've been told crew has not received their announcement to leave, and so if you are in grade six, six to eight, you may venture on out with Nathan back there uh, to open the word with him. As Cameron alluded to earlier we have been working through a series where we are teaching through the narrative arc of the Bible, or a phrase that we saw on the screen there that we've adopted from the Bible Project, preaching through the unified story that leads us to Jesus. And as you'll see on the next slide, we've made a few pit stops along the way already. We are into week five. And so if you missed any of those other stops along the way, I would encourage you to go back onto our YouTube page or our podcast to give those a listen but also, as Cameron said, today we arrive at the person of Moses and the things that God was able to do in and through his servant, Moses. Now, if you're familiar with the text, you'll know that we have skipped over a few prominent Old Testament figures since looking at Abraham last week, right? Abraham had his son Isaac, Isaac had Jacob and Esau, Jacob had his 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph, and a good chunk of the latter half of the book of Genesis tracks through the life of Joseph, and how he was sold into slavery, how he worked his way up the Egyptian political system, and eventually how his family, who at one point sold him into slavery, ends up making their way to Joseph in Egypt. And that's how the Israelites end up in Egypt. Now, the reason we glanced over all of that is twofold. One, by my math, we are roughly 30... 6% through our series, and about 1.9% through the Bible. (laughs) So we have some ground to make up this week, and I assure you we will cover some ground this morning, so buckle up. Um, The second is that, once again, our goal is to trace the narrative arc of the Bible. And so while there are significant and impactful stories in the stuff that we missed, we believe the next key place to look is at the events that transpired during the life of Moses. Moses as we seek to trace this unified story. And that's not necessarily because Moses was particularly special or particularly righteous. Very early on into Moses' story that we see in the scriptures, he kills someone, has to flee for his life, and then he identifies as someone who is slow of speech and tongue. Interpret that as you will. So there was nothing particularly special about Moses, but we believe the events that transpired during the life of Moses are significant to the plot line of the story because it shows God's continued faithfulness to that promise to Abraham that we looked at last week, and that as undeserving as we are, God continues to partner with imperfect humans like Moses to carry forward his plans and his purposes. And so we begin our time today at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, And Exodus begins 400 years after Joseph had brought his family to Egypt. And so Joseph is long gone at this point. The Pharaoh who liked Joseph and his family is long gone. And the Israelites begin to be viewed as a threat to the new Pharaoh, the new man in charge, because he has a foreign nation of people who are quite large and growing, living in very close proximity to one another. And so this new Pharaoh responds by enslaving the, the not the Egyptian people, the Israelite people. And it's into this time and this place that the person of Moses is born into. And so his story begins rather harshly with a mass genocide of Hebrew male newborns. Once again, another attempt for Pharaoh to maintain his dominion over the growing Israelite people. And so in an attempt to save her child, Moses's mother and sister put him in a basket and send him down the Nile River, only to be picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, who out of her compassion takes the child, raises him as an Egyptian, gives him the name Moses. And then what we see the text do is it flashes forward to adult Moses now, And what we see him doing is fleeing for his life because he has just killed an Egyptian slave driver who was mistreating one of his fellow Hebrews. And so this obviously gets him in some trouble, and so he has to flee. And he ends up fleeing for his life into the desert of Midian. And it's during Moses' time in the wilderness here that we have this account of his interaction between God and him in the form of the burning bush that Leighton just read for us. And I'm not going to read that whole passage again, but I will read that second half, where God, through the burning bush, is speaking to Moses, and he says this, "'I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey.'" And then a f- few verses later, God says to Moses, So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so from, in Exodus 4, we see Moses and Aaron then make the journey back to Egypt. And then from Exodus 4 to Exodus 12, we see the incredible signs and wonders and plagues that God brings upon the Egyptian people in effort to get Pharaoh to release his people from Pharaoh's control. And if you're familiar with the story, you know it took how many plagues for Pharaoh to finally give in? Ten. Very good, very good. Um, How Pharaoh lasted ten plagues, I don't know. If I were in charge, the second I found frogs in my bed, (laughs) I would have sent the Israelites packing get out of here. But Pharaoh was resilient. The text tells us that greed and power had completely hardened his heart, and he would not allow the Hebrews to leave until that 10th plague, where God sent what the scriptures tell us as the destroyer, or some translations will use the angel of death, through Egypt to kill every firstborn in Egypt, both animal and human, ultimately resulting in the death of Pharaoh's son himself, at which point Pharaoh has had enough, and he sends, he gives his blessing for Moses to take the Israelites away. And so the Israelites, under the governance and leadership of Moses, head on their merry way, where they eventually arrive at the Red Sea, where we have that other very famous passage of God parting the sea so that the Israelites can travel through it, and then on their way to the base of Mount Sinai, where the narrative ultimately continues. But we just covered a lot of ground there, so let's pause and let's just recap exactly what we've seen and what this particular narrative is really about. So we have we have this group of people, right? God's chosen family, a family whom he's entered into a covenant with, right, which indicated that they would be a thriving and blessed nation through whom God would use to bless the entire world. And it's these people who are now under the heavy yoke of slavery in Egypt. You can see there's a bit of an issue there, right? And so God, having heard their cries of distress and remembering the covenant that he entered into with this family, chooses to rescue his people through Moses. And so what this this section of Scripture is really all about, it's the story of God bringing his people from slavery into freedom. Now, if your knowledge of this particular story comes from the 1998 animated film The Prince of Egypt, as was the first place I was probably introduced to this story, um, that's where the narrative ends. I watched the final scenes of that this week as I was preparing, and, and the movie concludes with the Israelites having made it through the Red Sea. They turn around, they see the Egyptians get washed up into it. There's a big celebration. It then cuts to... Moses walking down from Mount Sinai with these two stone tablets, which we know uh, what those represent. The sun is setting in the backdrop behind the mountains. Hans Zimmer is serenading this whole scene. It's beautiful. It's really like the ultimate happily ever after moment. And I obviously know why the directors chose to finish it that way, because it had to end at some point, and ultimately this is a children's story, or, pardon, movie, Um, It's definitely not just a children's story. (laughs) That's why we're looking at it. Um, But as we know from the text, this very clearly was not where the narrative ends, and it it certainly wasn't the most happily ever after moment. Because what we see happen next, the next kind of chapter of Israel's history, is that their slavery and their bondage to Pharaoh and the Egyptians was certainly not their only problem. So while they may have escaped their physical or political captivity, they, they continued to remain captive to a much deeper issue, right? They, they remained captive to their sin, a captivity that prevented them from stepping into and enjoying the physical liberation that God had delivered them into. And so for the next 40 years that followed the liberation from Egypt, the the Israelites wandered around in the wilderness, being given every opportunity and every reason to trust God. And as the narrative goes, they they just simply cannot. Um, A brief literature review of those 40 years. I've hand-selected a few stories to kind of summarize these next 40 years so that we're not sitting listening to my message for 40 years. Exodus 16 God provides food in the form of manna, but asks the Israelites not to store any of it up for the next day, but to trust that he will continue to provide each and every day. What do they do? They store it up. Exodus 32, Moses travels up to Mount Sinai to receive instructions from God. And what's the first thing he sees upon his descent? The Israelites breaking the first commandments by worshipping a golden calf, followed by Moses out of anger, smashing the tablets on the ground, needing to go get new ones. Numbers 13, the Israelites go to investigate the land that God had promised to give them, and they find out, so surprisingly, it's just as beautiful as he had described. And so what do they do? They doubt God's ability to give it to them, and then almost stone the men who suggest that maybe they should trust God. Later on, in Numbers 20, the Israelites are in need of water, uh, as you do in the wilderness. And so what does Moses do? Well, he provides them water by hitting his staff on the rock but what he forgets is that he is not the ultimate provider for the Israelite people. It is God who is the ultimate provider. And in that scene, God, me, Moses essentially tries to play God on the Israelite's behalf. Now, there are many stories that you can pick from this 40 years in the wilderness. But I think, I think the message comes across, right? That despite the incredible signs and wonders that God had done for the Israelite people and the way that he had continued to provide for them, They responded by being, by complaining, by doubting his goodness, by doubting his provision, by doubting his plan, by breaking his law, by being completely ungrateful to the point of basically the entire time wishing that they were back in captivity to Pharaoh. And so, as a result of this response, as a result of their sin, for many it resulted in their death and their suffering, and for those who didn't weren't impacted in that way, it resulted in their disqualification from entering into the promised land, Moses included. And so they essentially just wander around in the wilderness until that generation of Israelite people had passed on, and the new generation of Israelites were primed and ready to enter into this land flowing with milk and honey, which brings us to the book of Deuteronomy. We started in Genesis, we're now in Deuteronomy, we're making up grounds. And Deuteronomy is a book, primarily Moses' final words of instructions and encouragement to this next generation of Israelites as they are preparing to enter this promised land. And his primary encouragement is for them to be faithful to the covenant that they had entered into, that their family had entered into with God. And so, as the reader having just kind of worked through this whole narrative, even though the next generation of Israelites are there, they're ready to enter, it seems like they have great future leadership of their people in Joshua, and Moses has just provided all this wonderful instruction in the book of Deuteronomy. Because we know the history of this people, you're not really left with that much optimism. right? As the reader, you, you kind of feel like even though they're set up for success, the writing is kind of on the wall, that they're going to find some way to mess it up. And if you keep reading in the narrative, that eventually happens. Um, But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18, Moses gives us this glimmer of hope, something to hold on to as the Israelites begin this next chapter of their history. And in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15, it says this. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own people. You must listen to him. just, Just a little bit lower, he says, I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I have commanded him. Someone else is coming, Moses says. Someone like me, And someone who is going to have a message that you're not only just going to want to hear, but that you're going to want to listen to and obey. Now, if we flash forward to the very final words of of the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 34, um, I want to pick up Deuteronomy 34 in verse 5, where these are the the final words of the Torah or the Pentateuch, uh, those five first first five books of the Bible, where it says this in verse five. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. Interesting. I thought Moses wrote Deuteronomy. How the heck is he commenting on his death? Well, that's not actually the case. The the final chapter of the book of Deuteronomy would have been a later rabbinic addition to the words of Moses, and they would have been added because the writer would have felt compelled to kind of bring all of Moses' writings to a close by kind of commenting on his death and kind of reflecting on the life of Moses in this final chapter of the text, which makes more sense. And so whoever this writer is, he goes on by saying this. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day, nobody knows where his grave is. So let's pause there again. What is this verse telling us? Well, it's telling us that whoever did happen to write this section of Scripture is writing well after the life of Moses. And it doesn't tell us how far after, but it's long enough after that to this day, the day that it is being written, nobody remembers where the grave is, right? They're so far removed from when that actually happened, they're not entirely sure where Moses' body was buried. Let's continue in verse 10, where it says this. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all the officials and to his whole land. One final time we'll pause and ask, what can we learn from these writings? Well, to start, we can learn that very clearly the Israelites, who one of whom would have written these words, took Moses' words in Deuteronomy 18 very seriously. They were waiting for that Moses-like figure or prophet to come. And secondly, even though these writings are written well after the life of Moses and likely after the lives of many other leaders who followed Moses, this Moses-like figure from Deuteronomy 18 has not yet come. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses right, they were still waiting for the man whom the Lord knew face to face. And for the Israelite people, it continued to be that way for generations, right, God's chosen people and family waiting for this Moses-like prophet to come as an act of deliverance and commitment to the covenant that God had entered into with this chosen family, Now, if you have a Bible, we will continue to flip forward to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. This is the first book in what we call the New Testament, and what we have in the the opening chapters of our New Testament is the story of a birth, the birth of a child. And in Matthew chapter 1, we learn that this child was born into the covenant family of God. In Matthew chapter 2, we see that this child is born into a political time and place where there is a foreign nation ruling over that covenant family of God. In that same chapter, we learn that this child has to flee for his life because of a mass genocide of Hebrew male newborns. And then in Matthew chapter 3 and chapter 4, we see the text fast forward to the adult life of this child. And we see this this man enter into the waters of baptism and upon emerging from the water proceed to then spend 40 days in the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? Well, he is tempted to abandon his trust in God. And so, what I hope came across is that very clearly the, the gospel writer Matthew, right at the start of his writings wants to point out the remarkable similarity of this infancy narrative to the other infancy narrative that had become so prominent in the Israelite history as that of the life of Moses. Essentially, as a way of saying, remember Deuteronomy 18, right? This is the guy. Like, this is him. This is the Moses-like figure that we have been waiting for, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one whom the Lord knows face to face because he is himself God. And he's the one who God has sent as a messenger of good news and to liberate his people. Whereas Jesus says himself in Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. (laughs) And so while Jesus very clearly came to bring freedom for the prisoners, just as Moses did, the freedom that Jesus came to provide was a little bit different than the the freedom that Moses came to provide. And in Acts chapter 3, we have the Apostle Peter expanding on this deliverance that Jesus has come as this new Moses-like figure. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, it says this. This is Peter's preaching to the crowds. It says this in verse 22. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. That should sound very familiar, because it is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 18. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel and all the prophets who have spoken, who have spoken, have foretold these days. They've been speaking about this moment right now. And you are heirs of the prophets and the covenant God, the covenant God made with your fathers. And he, he said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. That covenant we looked at last week. But then he closes with this sentence. He says, when God raised up his servant, a.k.a. when God raised Christ from the dead in in the conquering of death itself, he sent him first to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. And so the freedom and the liberation that this new Moses has brought us is not a a physical or a political liberation as many Jews at the time were expecting and understandably expecting. Instead, it was a freedom from, as Peter tells us, our wicked ways, from our captivity and bondage to sin and from its power over us, from the implications of it, And from the very thing that disqualified us back in Genesis 3 from living in the garden. Right? That thing that that got us kicked out and separated us from the presence of God. The Apostle Paul phrases it this way in Colossians 1. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And as Peter tells us, we ultimately see this act of freedom and deliverance come in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Jesus' entire life was a testament to this kind of freedom that he had come to provide. And we see it, once again, in those very, very early chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. As we said, there is this very clear overlap between the early chapters in life of Jesus and the history of Moses and the Israelites. But where their stories begin to, to, to go different directions was in that wilderness experience, because the forty day, pardon me, the forty years that Moses and the Israelites spent in the wilderness exposed their complete and utter captivity to sin. But the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness exposed his complete and utter control and dominion over sin and over the powers of darkness. And upon emerging from that wilderness experience, what are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in every gospel? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near And so in the person of Jesus Christ, God was coming to deal with the very thing that disqualified us from the garden, right? And in the person of Jesus, he was welcoming us back into it by literally bringing heaven to earth, right? By bringing the presence and the reign of God to us and making it possible once again for humans to occupy the same space as God And in doing so, allow us to experience the union and the communion with the triune God as we were created to be and to live in in the first place. Now, how exactly did Jesus do that? Well, Peter has already told us in the death and the resurrection of our anointed representative, right? This new Moses that God had promised way back to his people in Deuteronomy 18, would come. Now, I know we've covered a lot of ground this morning and lots of narratives, but I'd like to fast forward to one final one as we kind of transition into the next point in our service this morning. And this is a story we're not going to necessarily read, but a story I'll just reference. Uh, it's found in Matthew chapter 26. And this story takes place right at the tail end of Jesus' life on earth. It's at this point in the story that he knows that his his death and his crucifixion are imminent. But like any good practicing Jew at the time, him and his disciples sat down for the Passover meal. And this Passover meal was a festival that was commanded by God for them to practice as a way of remembering the ways in which God had, had led through the person of Moses the Israelite people out of slavery and into freedom. And the term Passover specifically points to that 10th plague that we talked about, right? That plague where the, the destroyer, or angel of death, whatever translation you have, went through and killed every firstborn in Egypt. And what saved the firstborns of Israel in that story was the blood of a sacrificed lamb that they had painted on the sides and the tops of their door frames. Because when the angels saw that blood, he passed over their homes and spared them from death, thus providing the opportunity for future or imminent liberation. And so in Matthew chapter 26, when the disciples sit down for a meal, this is not any, just any meal, this is the lens through which they are participating in this very specific meal and festival and when they sit down and jesus hands them the unleavened bread as was customary what happens next is anything but customary because when he hands them the bread he doesn't say eat this bread in remembrance of the liberation that god had brought to the israelites from egypt as was what had been this festival had been since the time of moses that's what it's always been about and so instead he hands them the bread and he distributes the wine, and he tells them to eat and to drink of it, now, in remembrance of me, right? Of the freedom that I'm about to provide for you in the breaking of my body and the shedding of my blood. Right. No longer is this meal about the blood of the lamb that once saved Israel from death, but about my blood the shedding of which liberates you from the power of sin and the dominion of darkness, and that invites you into the very kingdom of God and into a communion with our triune God, the only type of life that Jesus describes as life to the absolute full. Now you'll notice we have a couple of tables over here, Um, in reflecting on how to respond to this, this freedom and liberation that Jesus has given to us and provided, I can't think of a better way than to celebrate that and to remember that than in the very way that Jesus instructed his disciples to honor and to remember it. And so, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus this morning, and you've put your faith and trust in Him, then in a moment I'm going to invite you to come to the table as an act of remembrance and joyful celebration in not only what Christ has done on your behalf, but in the new life that He has given you to live. Right? And to rejoice in that. If you haven't found that moment of rejoicing thus far in your day, here it is. Now, if... Prior to today, you would not have identified as a follower of Jesus. But the truths that we have seen outlined for us in the scriptures as we've worked through this unified story that's ultimately led us to this moment have moved your heart towards that place of being drawn to Jesus in this, in this time. Um, I'd love to pray for you right now, um, to pray with you and for you. And, and as I pray, I would invite you to echo my words Uh, In your heart and speak them into your own life as well. And if you find yourself doing that, then I would also invite you to the table as well as a way of acknowledging both to God and to those who are in this room our surrendering to Jesus and the liberation that He has provided us, all of which He has done on our behalf, and to the new life that He has made possible for us to live a life that is free from the dominion of darkness and the power of sin over us. And knowing that we now get to live in the kingdom of God, not just in eternity, but here and now as well. So why don't I pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, this day this day that you have made lord we we rejoice in it as we come together as we commune with one another as we open your word, and are once again for some reminded of truths that we have known for quite a while and for some of us truths that we are 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 being revealed to us for the very first time this morning lord and so Lord, I pray on behalf of those of us who are receiving this news and accepting this as truth for the very first time, we thank you, Lord, we thank you that despite our complete inability to trust you, our inability to live as you require, that that through the the death And the resurrection of the son that you sent out of your complete love for us that we are now free from the condemnation of sin we are free from this barrier that has separated us from you and now we get to enter into this new life of communion and relationship with you and so lord we thank you for that and we receive your grace and your love and desire to step into the life that you now want us to live here on earth prior to joining you in eternity. And Lord, for the rest of us, those who have heard these words before but are just being refreshed in them again this morning, Lord, I pray that that your spirit would make these, these texts, make these truths Continually more real in our everyday life, and that as we continue to live in your kingdom, as we continue to interact with the people around us, that your love and your grace would be the source through which we go and interact. And Lord, we know the way that you call us to live is no way that we can live on our own or by our own strength, but that we would learn to depend on the Spirit that you have given to us, your Holy Spirit. To go and to be bearers of your love and your grace and your truth lord we thank you for this time and this space once again on this beautiful day that you have given to us and i pray that all of us lord would just leave this place rejoicing in the day that you have made i pray these things in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen